Well, we've been singing to God. Let's pray to Him now. Father, what a privilege is ours to speak to you in prayer and know that these aren't hopeful words lost, Lord, into space. We can speak to you, the creator of this beautiful, magnificent world, and know that you listen to us. We are loved. We are cared for. You've sent your son in our place to live for us, to be our substitute, our savior, our guide. Thank you. Help me now, Lord Jesus, to speak clearly and well of you. Thank you for all who have come. Thank you for those who are a little, little reluctant, a little apprehensive, not sure what they're in for. Would you personally speak to them in a way that only you can, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Hello, everybody. I love the enthusiasm. I'm so glad that you're here. If we haven't met, I tried. I was out in the parking lot greeting as many of you as possible. If I missed you, I'm sorry. My name is Bruce Garner. I'm the senior pastor here at Crosspoint, and I'm just absolutely delighted to welcome you to the third and final Easter service here at Crosspoint Church. Hopefully, we have saved the very best for last. You look amazing. Some great Easter outfits out there. Sorry about this. Um, just not a very flashy person, I suppose, but I am delighted that you're here, and let me tell you, let me tell you what we're going to do. Because when somebody comes to any church for the first time, and especially if it's been a long time, they have two questions. What's going to happen, and how long is it going to take? <laughs> I can answer the first one very clearly. How long it's going to take, I don't actually know. This is the third and final service, so there's actually no way of knowing, but I, I mean well, okay? Here's what's going to happen. We're going to open our Bibles. You can find one in the seat near you if you didn't bring one with you. And almost all the Scripture that I'm going to be referencing is going to be on the screen. It's all drawn from the Gospel of John. John is one of the four writers that gives us a first hand, he was either there or close to people who were account of the life of Jesus. John in particular was there. He was one of the original inner circle of Jesus, men known as the apostles. And all that means is that Jesus sent them out on his behalf to tell the world what he was doing. John refers to himself, as you're going to see in the passage, he refers to himself a few times in his own writing. John was literally physically closest to Jesus in the last hours of his life. And John has a very simple purpose in writing, and you're going to see it in the writings themselves. This dates back to the generation of Jesus. You're reading a document, a well-attested, very well-represented in archaeology and history, document of the ancient world that tells you verifiably who Jesus was and what He did. And in John's own words, what he wants you to do is meet the person he knew, Jesus, and believe in him. And that's all I'm going to do. I'm going to walk you through a selection as John moves you through the life of Jesus and explains to you the purpose for the life of Jesus and the reason Christians around the world are celebrating his resurrection and I'm going to very explicitly, clearly, with no pressure, ask you personally to trust in Jesus. I'm not on commission, not a salesman. There's no pressure. There's a message. And most importantly of all, there's a person. 
And there's a lot of things to overcome anytime we speak about Jesus, and the main thing to overcome is religiosity. I'm not going to invite you, please don't misunderstand me on the front side, I'm front-loading this to tell you, I'm not asking you to change religions. I'm asking you instead to give up on religion. Because what religion is, in all of its many names and forms, religion invites you onto a path, usually a very ancient path, filled with rules, sets a standard, usually a high one, and tells you if you do these things that we have told you long enough, well enough, hard enough, maybe someday you'll be good enough. And the message of Jesus is utterly contrary to that. It actually blows that up. The good news, the gospel, is the, to use the biblical word that I'm announcing to you, is not a set of rules or a set of practices that you must engage in to someday be good enough for God. It's the announcement instead that Jesus is good enough and that He lived, died, and rose again on your behalf. It's not an invitation to climb the mountain following your own path. It's the announcement that God came down from glory, humbled Himself becoming a normal human being, was tempted in the same way as you are, and laid His life down. As you're going to see in John's gospel, He specifically, purposely died for you so that you could live through Him. And the point of the resurrection is it historically, verifiably, humanly proves that Jesus was who He claimed to be and that He can do what He promised but there's a lot to overcome because religion invites you to try a little harder. And I'm not inviting you to try harder. I'm inviting you to simply humbly trust Jesus, to give up on yourself and trust Him. So at the end, when I'm done, and again, I'm going to try to move quickly, I'm going to ask you to pray and to specifically ask the Jesus who's listening because He really is alive to save you, to have mercy on you. If He's going to save you, you'll have to confess your need of Him. In other words, you'll have to say that He's a Savior and you're a sinner, that you've fallen short. Your own conscience tells you that. And I'm going to ask you to pray and call out to Him, not to me, not to make a pledge to this church, not to promise to try harder, but to put your trust in Him. And before you go home, I would also like to invite you to find the card in your bulletin. Let us know that you've done that. And publicly own your faith in Christ this morning. And if we know about it, we're going to pray for you, support you, encourage you on your terms as best we can. But again, a lot to overcome. I grew up in northern Mexico. My parents were missionaries. I grew up in Chihuahua, which is unfortunately where the dog comes from, I'm told. I regret that. I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> we could have done so much better. Um, <laughs> please don't walk out, Chihuahua owners. I'm I'm sorry. And I grew up in a, in a different time. The internet had not connected the whole world. Walmart had not yet arrived in Mexico. Having chocolate chips was a big deal when I grew up in Mexico. And I just had a very simple life. It was like Mexican Mayberry, if you will, when I was growing up. And moving back to the United States, there were all kinds of culture shock, including the amazingly crazy things that people with disposable income in the United States are willing to do sheerly for entertainment. For instance, I discovered as a young pastor that some people with disposable income and maybe more courage than good sense are willing to take rafts up a mountain, find a river that could actually kill them, throw the raft in the river, jump in the raft, and hope they live to tell the tale. 
I was told that's called whitewater rafting and that it would be a bonding experience. It was because shared suffering and fear does bond men together. <laughs> and that if I were any kind of a pastor and any kind of a leader of a group of men, we would go whitewater rafting together. So off we went. And these salty guys who I'd learned through talking to them had basically dedicated themselves to checking out of normal society and living on the river and living for the river. They gave us what they called a safety briefing. And that, that, that captured my attention, right? They said, look, the we've had some storms. The river is almost impassable. You're in for a great time. <laughs> yeah, great. Um, he said, it's very likely that some of you are going to come out of the boat. He said, when you do, we need you, and here's the key phrase, we need you to be an active participant in your own rescue. <laughs> he said, we will try very hard to get you, but we need you to help. And I raised my hand. I said, have you, have you lost many people here on the river? <laughs> he said, it's been a long time, which is better, but... You don't want to hear that, right? So sure enough, off we went, and I'm telling this story with his permission. I didn't check before the Saturday service. I checked this morning. My good friend Rick, we hit the very first rapid with these ominous names that are meant to warn you, right? Like Last Hope and, you know, Bill's Last Resort and Gulch of Death and all these terrible names. We hit a, as it turns out, a massive hole in the river, and Rick didn't fall out of the boat. He was launched out of the boat. I'm, I'm pretty sure I saw the soles of his shoes. I'm almost positive he was wearing Nikes that day. As he flew over me and landed in the river, he turned back to look at the rest of us, and I was sure I was looking at the face of a dead man. And he shot almost the entire rapids without the benefit of a boat, which is not recommended. And he was a very active participant in his own rescue. <laughs> I was spared the pain of a riverside service in Rick's honor and, and memory, and they got him back in the boat. And that's what a lot of people think spirituality is about, that you have to be an active participant in your own rescue. And you don't. In fact, let me just... Before we read the Bible, just let me put it to you in plain, clear English. If you try to save yourself, you'll fail. Jesus is a savior, not a life coach, not a guide. It's not that you do what you can and he does what he can. It's that he will be a whole savior or none at all. And he does that by making you this extraordinary promise which he then keeps. Look at John 10. Jesus said, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have it life, that they may have life and have it abundantly. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. That last sentence is a promise to you. Jesus announced publicly the reason for His birth and His presence on earth. He said, you live in an environment that results in loss and death and destruction, and everybody knows that. We've done an amazing job in the United States especially of sanitizing and pushing back the reality of suffering and death, but it's real. The thief 
which is lies, false religious teachings, false spiritual guidance, the effort to save yourself, all the spiritual forces that conspire against you having real life. He comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Jesus has come so that you may have life, and not a survival life, but abundant, full, meaningful, eternal life. And the question is whether you believe Jesus can keep that promise to you. And John's answer as an eyewitness of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is that He can, and the way He keeps that promise is through what we're celebrating today all over the world. He keeps that promise through His resurrection. From John's gospel, let me tell you about the life and the resurrection of Jesus. First of all, the foundational fact of all of this is the resurrection of Jesus is an actual fact of human history. Because of something psychologists call recency bias, in other words, things that happened recently are more important and more believable, it's sometimes hard for us to understand that things that happened long ago actually did happen and actually have meaning. But God, for His own reasons, intervened at a specific time in history and orchestrated things that I won't have the time to go into. He orchestrated language, history, and cultures to give undeniable, well-attested proof of who Jesus was and what He was doing in history. John was only one of those eyewitnesses, and he says things like this in John chapter 1. Here's the very beginning of John's story of Jesus. He's telling to you about two ordinary men who first encountered Jesus. His name was Philip. And it says, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. In other words, Philip and Nathanael, like all Jewish boys in their day, had grown up reading what you and I call the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. They were well-versed in everything God had said to Israel. Some 1,400 years earlier, Moses began telling them of their origins. The prophets wrote 700 years after that. In other words, God has given them some 700 years, a detailed picture of the one He would send, and Philip is saying, we found Him. We know specifically who He is. His name is Jesus. He grew up in Nazareth, and we know His Father. He is the son of Joseph. I want you to see the reaction. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? You put your own name, don't call it out, you'll offend somebody, but you can put the name of the town you least like in, in California and has a bad reputation. Nazareth is probably a town of about five acres. It probably wasn't much bigger than our church campus. It was a village. It had a bad reputation. It was a place of no importance. And Nathanael says, really? From Nazareth? And Philip said to him, come and see. And that's all I'm inviting you to do. I'm inviting you to come and see. Because God, in literally dozens of instances across centuries of His writings in Scripture, gave public witness to the reality of Jesus. John himself quotes the Old Testament about ten times telling the story of Jesus. And he doesn't do it the most. As you're going to read in just a moment, you're going to see this happen so that it was fulfilled, this happened so that it, was be, it would be fulfilled, and one of the most amazing things is this. Most of these ten times that John is quoting his Bible, his Scriptures, these are things being done to Jesus. 
things that he had no physical human control over. There are things that are being done to him even after his death because God wanted to leave no doubt. He wanted to put in recorded history and prophecy centuries before his son was born a unique prophecy, a unique tapestry of promises so that people would identify exactly who Jesus is. Here's one of those instances. John is taking you to the moment after the death of Jesus. John was one of those few disciples that did not run in fear. He actually stood by the cross with Jesus' mother and watched his Savior, his boss, his friend die. And at the end, in John 19, he writes this, He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth. And here's his point, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of His bones will be broken. And again, another Scripture says, they will look on Him of whom they have pierced. These are just two of the ten. But John has related in history, because of film in our day, is well acquainted with the absolute brutality of the Roman crucifixion, but God had promised as an identifying mark of His Son that He would be crucified and killed on a tree but for all the terrible things they did to the body of Jesus, they would not break a single one of his bones. And John witnessed a Roman soldier in frustration run his spear through Jesus, and he saw blood and water pour out, testimony that he was already dead. And he says, I'm telling you what I saw, and those things happened so that Scripture would be fulfilled, not a bone broken. And people would publicly witness at the cross the Son of God run through, and they would see physical evidence that even in the ancient world would be readily understood as this, they've actually killed Him. See, one of the barriers to faith is because of recency bias and because of our love in science, and we think that only science delivers facts, we think this that perhaps ancient people were more easily duped and they just thought he was dead. May I suggest to you that we as moderns probably have less acquaintance with death than people from the ancient world did? We've made it so sanitary that it looks like someone is sleeping. In the ancient world, death was so common, came so early, often in such ugly circumstances that, believe me, John the disciple at the cross of Jesus knew that Jesus was actually dead, and he reflects back on his entire life, and he's telling you from what he saw and what Jesus said that all of these scriptures point to the public fact, first of Jesus' life, then of his death, and finally of his incredible, amazing resurrection. Jesus himself knew it too. This is Jesus speaking now, not John. Read this with me, in fact. It's, Jesus said, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Jesus is talking in this instance to people who knew the Scriptures well, but that refused to believe in Him. And he's telling them the heart of their problem. He says, you search the Scriptures. These men famously had the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, memorized in some cases by heart. 
all of it, history says. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. This is like reading a 12-page introductory letter and refusing to meet the person who's being described. And he says, here's the heart of the problem. Here's the beauty of Jesus' offer. Here's what would be tragic if you would come on an Easter service, maybe just to satisfy the family and keep peace. Listen to Jesus say to you, you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Jesus knows exactly who he is in all of his life. His death and his resurrection is lived in public. This is what Jesus sets apart. His life, death, and resurrection is all public. This is one of the things that makes him stand apart from every other religious or spiritual thinker. The way religious and spiritual thinking works is this. Someone goes off somewhere, sometimes to the mountaintop, sometimes in a cave or the desert. They bury themselves in study, and they have an ecstatic experience sometimes. They have some kind of breakthrough, and they come out of private and tell the public. The life of Jesus is very different. Everything he says and does is in public, and men who at first did not believe him were so convinced that everything he said was true, they preferred death rather than to take the story back. So why don't people more readily believe if this is, even though it's an ancient fact of history, if it's in publicly available, open to scrutiny fact of history that has convinced in many cases the most hard-bitten atheists and the most committed to science people in the world who have eventually succumbed and submitted themselves to the faith and the person of Jesus, why doesn't everybody buy it? Well, again, it's hard to simplify such a difficult question, but I think the heart of it is this. Jesus is not inviting you into an ethical system. He's not inviting you in Christianity to subscribe to a set of ideas. He's asking you to do something much harder, something that requires His own grace for you to do. He's asking you to stop trusting yourself and start trusting Him. There will always be room for faith. But the faith that God has left is not an unreasonable faith. It is because if you will be saved, if you will have the abundant life that Jesus promised you, it's because it will be a personal relationship. And the nature of every personal relationship is it requires a certain amount of trust. Easter famously is the busiest day for Christian churches. It's the most well attended. And I get it. Some of you are here and kind of hoping it gets over real soon because maybe, I hope not, but probably. But you had just enough trust in your mom or your aunt or whoever got you in here that it was going to be all right. If you actually believed that this was some kind of elaborate scheme to present you with a timeshare opportunity so that you could buy an interest in a place in Florida, you would not have come. The nature of personal relationships, they require trust. Simple way to understand that. A complete stranger drives up, rolls the window down, and says, get in, let's go. What do you do? You get in? No, you call the cops. There's some weirdo out here in a Corolla asking people to get in his car with him. I need you to come collect him, please. No, you wouldn't do that. If the person you most love and admire in the world, say in your family, pulls up and says, come on, hurry, get in the car, we've got to go, you'll get in and on the way ask what happened. Is everything okay? What makes the difference? 
Trust. Jesus is giving you first historically verifiable, investigatable reasons to believe, to trust Him. It all happened in history. And the reason it happened, the reason Jesus was willing to sacrifice and to prove so much is because, number two, it deals with our greatest problem. Our greatest problem is what all of spirituality is intended to address and everyone but Jesus fails to solve. Spirituality is intended to address the problem of sin and what always comes with sin, death. That's why the resurrection of Jesus matters. That's why it counts because Jesus Himself is asking you on the basis of the power, the authenticity of His resurrection, of His resurrection to believe that He can deal with sin. That's where the Gospel of John actually starts. In John chapter 1, verse 29, John the Baptist, a near relative of Jesus who was just a little bit older than he, was sent into Israel first to prepare the way for people to hear about Jesus. If you're a football fan, consider John the Baptist the lead blocker. The ball carrier, the one who's going to win is Jesus Christ, but he's coming behind John. John is going first, preparing the way. And here's what John said. The next day, after all this preaching, crowds are coming out to John in the desert, but one day John saw Jesus. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And there's no one else who can make that claim. That sounds a little strange to your ears, perhaps, because you were not steeped in Judaism. But God had said through long object lessons called sacrifices that sin separated them from Him. And your conscience tells you the same. You're just like me. You navigate your, your way through life saying, I shouldn't have done that. I wish I weren't like that. I wish I didn't think this way. And the Bible says that that is God's law written on your heart, testifying against you, showing you the difference between right and wrong. Every healthy human being has a conscience. It's God's gift to point you back to Himself and to tell you what you deep in your heart and your honest moments already know you cannot save and change yourself. And John, in a single sentence, tells you what sets Jesus apart. He says, look, modern English, Look, this is the Lamb of God. This isn't another ordinary sacrifice. This is the sacrifice God sent, and what He's going to do is take away the sin of the entire world because what Jesus is doing is dealing with sin and death. Here's how He explained it in John 3.16. This is the well, most well-known verse in the Bible. Read it with me. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish. God loved the world, the world subject to loss and death and destruction. God saw, loved the world that He saw ruined by sin, and here was His answer. He gave His only Son so that whoever believes in Him should not, here's the word everybody misses, perish. What's it mean? It means you're going to die. 
This is a terrible thing to tell a crowd on Easter, but it's true. You're all dying. Just like me. Someone will say, I'm too young and good looking. Well, <laughs> you are young. Some of you are very good looking. May I tell you, I was once young and better looking. <laughs> Look what happens. Everyone is living in the face of their own death. It's true. Jesus knows it. He speaks with severe love, with great mercy, because He wants you to know the truth about life. The world has been ruined by sin. It is characterized by loss, by death, by destruction. And into all of that stepped God, loving the world, giving His own Son so that whoever believes in Him should not perish but instead have everlasting life. Jesus came to deal with sin and death. And in the final passage I'll show you, in the most extended passage from John's gospel that portrays how Jesus saves you, let me take you now, please, to John chapter 10. When Jesus said this, there was a Jewish festival. I won't get into the time and the details, but suffice it to say that when Jesus is reading this, the synagogues around him are reaching back into their prophecies, into a dark time of their history, and recognizing that their spiritual leaders, which the Scriptures sometimes call shepherds, it's the modern-day idea of the Christian pastor, their guides, in other words, who were men in need of salvation just as they are, but they were to take and to point people back to God, had failed them. And those spiritual leaders became corrupt. And the words of the prophet Ezekiel says, instead of tending to the flock and feeding the flock, they slaughtered the flock and fed themselves. Have you ever known any spiritual leaders like that? They're everywhere, usually as close as your television. Not all of them, but some are very obviously living for a lifestyle. They're grifters, using the message of God to delude people to secure for themselves a lifestyle. Against those readings and those warnings in the synagogues around them, here's what Jesus said. Jesus again said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, here's the promise, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Why the door? Because shepherds in the ancient Mideast to this day, in some cases, would take their flocks far afield through the wilderness to find fresh pasture, to find fresh water, and since they were far from home, they would build temporary sheepfolds with no door because the shepherd himself would lay in the doorway and sleep there so that no predator and no thief could come in and attack the sheep without dealing with the good shepherd first. Jesus is saying, you have all kinds of voices and religiosity around you, but I'm the only one who can save you. If you come in through me, he says, in fact, you will be saved. You will go in and out and find pasture. The thief, Jesus says, comes only to steal and kill and destroy. Here's his promise again, which he keeps by the resurrection. I came that they may have life 
and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Sometimes we do an injustice to Jesus in Christian art. Maybe you grew up with some of these pictures. I know I did. Jesus looks like he's just kind of this rosy-cheeked guy who my grandmother would say butter wouldn't melt in his mouth. And he's holding this cuddly little lamb, and it's all very pastoral and all very quaint. You can almost hear the harps playing behind him. First century shepherd was nothing like that. You can think of him more as an American rancher of a few generations ago. He's a, he's a tough man. He's not hard on his animals because he cares for them, and they're going to give him sustenance. He's going to protect their life because they are his likelihood, they are his livelihood, and he will defend them even to the point of death. Look what John goes on to say. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. Jesus is pointing back to all the people who have given this spiritual advice saying they're hirelings. It's not working for you because it's not true, and they don't even care for you. But look at the difference. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and here's His death again. I lay down my life for the sheep. It goes on to say, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. That's you, maybe. Because Jesus spoke 2,000 years ago to an almost exclusively Jewish audience. They were reading in their synagogue scriptures written 1,400 years earlier, giving them a detailed picture, a fingerprint of who Jesus was. But Jesus says, I've come to save more than you. There are sheep outside this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So what I pray is happening is that some of you are hearing for the first time really and truly the voice of Jesus, and that you're not being persuaded by a preacher, that you're being persuaded by the voice of Jesus telling you this is all true. Here's Jesus' intent. There will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. And there's Jesus pointing to you, pointing you to the historical fact that proves that he is a truth teller. He is saying, my life will be taken from me, but only because I will lay it down. They're not actually going to kill me. I will actually die, but the reason I will die is because I will voluntarily, voluntarily surrender my life, and with the same authority that I give it away, I have the authority to take it back up. I've come here because that's what the Father has sent me to do. This is how Jesus deals with sin and death through His resurrection. But now we come to the end, and here's where you actually have a personal decision to make because all of this is very personal. It's not conceptual. 
It's not a series of abstract ideas that somebody thought would be a good idea to give people comfort in their time of death. No, it's all very real, and once Jesus was alive again from the dead, He went looking for people. Here's one of the instances. On the first day of the week, that's why Christians meet on Sunday. On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, that's John, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb. We do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. I love the little details because this tells you that these two very close friends, this isn't a buddy run, they're both desperate to get there. And they're running as hard as they can, and John's a little faster. And look at the temperaments play out. Stooping to look in, he, Peter, or rather John, who got there first, stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. If you know anything about Peter, this won't surprise you. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. John got there first, but he was too reticent to go in. Peter barrels in, and here's what he saw. He saw the linen cloth lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up in a place by itself. Why? Because Jesus took his life back. It wasn't grave robbing. It wasn't a man who was almost dead coming back to life, as some people have theorized. It was the Son of God doing exactly what He had promised, first in Scripture, then with His own words, in an orderly, powerful fashion, because He runs life and He's also in charge of death, taking His life back and leaving the grave clothes in an orderly fashion there to be examined by anyone who dared enter the tomb. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the Scripture that He must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes and look at the psychological reality of what John's going through. He believes, but he still doesn't understand the Scripture. He believes it's all coming true to him somehow, but he's getting, as anyone would, he's having an enormously difficult time knowing how death works and that dead men stay dead and they don't move, and the only way to explain a missing body is grave robbing. He believes, but he still doesn't understand the Scripture, that it's actually true, that it's happened in their lifetime, and Jesus, to save people, must rise from the dead. So they just go home. And they see him again and again in the end of John's gospel. And one man has an even harder time believing. His name is Thomas. Remember the nickname we hang on him? Doubting Thomas. Let me show you why he has that nickname. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Don't you think that's reasonable? You're telling me that the man we saw die, the death that broke Mary's heart, 
the death that is causing us all nightmares. You're saying you saw him back from the dead. I don't believe it. I'll need to see him. I'll need to see the scars. I heard of the spear. I'll need to put my hand where the wound should be. Here's what happened. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, because it's personal, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. It took proof for Thomas. And then Jesus opens the door for you, friend, and opened the door for my family two generations ago. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And that's your condition. Jesus is no longer physically present on earth, but He is no less real. He has promised to save anyone who will simply turn from their sin, their own self-determination, tear down their pride, the pride of their unbelief, and say, Jesus, I believe you. Jesus says such people will be blessed and more than you, Thomas. That's what happened in our family. Two generations ago, on both sides of our family, we were a terrible mess. We were the kind of messes on both sides of my family that gets the police involved, that makes ch children lose hope and women question through tears, whether anything will ever change. Jesus came in at different parts on both sides of my family and made broken, messed up, violent men into trophies of His grace. They weren't perfect when they died, but they were very, very different. I've had the blessing now of two generations of knowing this Jesus, not because I was raised that way, but because there was a day that I tore down my own pride. God, by His own grace, removed my blindness, my doubts, my fears. I fought like crazy, but He helped me. His grace put all of those things aside, and I trusted Him, and He's given me life, and He'll do the same for you. This is His promise. He said in John chapter 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. Here's his offer, friend. I came that you may have life and have it abundantly. My question to you, are you willing to believe him? Not believe a religion, but believe him. Not trust yourself a little better Make a better determination that you're going to get it figured out, that you'll change, that this has been inspiration enough, and you're going to go out there and make a difference and make yourself a little better. No, I'm asking you to give up on all of that and start believing and trusting Him if you're willing and if this morning you've heard His voice. Can we pray together so you can have a moment to reflect about it? Let me speak first to Christians. You've heard His voice, you, your testimony… It resonates with mine because you know the difference he's made. Keep listening, Christian. Keep following. He really is the one who can navigate you through suffering, loss, and death and give you eternal life. But my primary concern is for those of you who have struggled, questioned, wondered, and this morning you would say, as people have in other services, Bruce, I don't understand everything you said. There's a lot of ideas and a lot of words you just said. 
but I understand this much. I've sinned. I've offended God. I've hurt others. I'm clear on that much. I agree with Jesus. I cannot save myself, and this morning I am humbly asking Him to save me, to be my good shepherd, to give me His life and save me. If you will do that this morning, you can call out, call out to Him in prayer. He really does listen. He really does care. He rose from the dead so that he could listen to you this morning, hear your humble prayer, tell him that you want him to be your Savior and answer and save you. And I'm just wondering, are you willing? Is there anyone here who would take him up on his promise to be one of those blessed who did not see, but you still believe him? Is there anyone like that this morning? If there is, I'd like to pray for you and I'd like to pray with you, but I'm just going to ask you not to embarrass you in the slightest, just to do something very simple to help yourself identify and own your need of Jesus. I'm just going to ask you to put your hand up and put it right back down. Anyone here this morning who says, yes, Bruce, I don't understand everything, but I understand I believe Him. I trust Him. I want Jesus as my Savior this morning. Anyone like that? Would you raise your hand, please? Yes, thank you. Anyone else? I see a couple. Anyone else? No pressure. Just putting you squarely in front of the decision whether you're going to continue to trust yourself or start trusting Jesus. Any other people who would say, yes, Bruce, I, I believe, I trust Him, I want Him to give me eternal life this morning. Would you raise your hand, please? Thank you. God bless you, sir. If you do, you can just call out to him in your own words. When I became a Christian, when I entrusted myself to Jesus, I prayed something like this. You can pray with me if you like. Jesus, I understand I'm a sinner. I've done wrong and I'm sorry. I'm turning my back on that and turning myself over to you. Please save me. Please forgive me. Please give me mercy. Teach me to hear your voice and love you and follow you. Give me, please, Jesus, your eternal life. I ask it by your death and resurrection.